Thank you for listening to the Christ the King Church podcast. We exist to help people know, love, and obey Jesus as Lord over all of life. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctksensi.com. Morning, church. It's good to see everyone here today. Quite a few people here, and that's always fun to see. Um, my name is Michael, and I'm the lead pastor here. I'm glad you're here with us. Um, before we get started, I just want to remind everyone that next Sunday, this room will be about half as full. And it's not because of what I'm going to preach today. <laughs> Some sermons are like space makers, you know. It's like, it's like they just clear out the crowd. People don't want to come back. But no, it's not because of that. It is because we are going to two services instead of one, and that, is, that will make a lot more room for people. And so this is a great opportunity to, um, one, you'll have to just choose which service that you're going to commit to, but also a great opportunity to invite a friend, uh, somebody that you know that doesn't have a church home, uh, could be an unbeliever, could be another Christian that needs a church home, uh, invite them to come with you. And the going to two services will open up um, room in this in this room here, but also uh, make some more availability for parking. And um, to make the room feel a little bit more comfortable, we're, we're gonna remove some chairs out of this room. So it, so it won't be like a cavernous, empty room, but it will be, it'll be shrunk down. And that is a wonderful opportunity to get to know people. You'll, it, it, it's not so difficult to just navigate a crowded space to, to talk to somebody. So um, let's all bring our A-game next week, and uh, by that I mean we're here to worship the Lord, but while we're here to worship the Lord, there are other people who are joining us who will be visiting with us, and we want them to be able to um, experience who we are as a church, to be able to see Christ, to see the body of Christ and worship together, and we can bear witness for Jesus in our gathering. So that's next Sunday. The times are 9 o'clock and 11 o'clock. Um, there will be uh, details that are on the public. So if you don't get our weekly email, um, go to our website and then click on the link for the public under the connect tab and then put your name in there and then you'll get added to our email list. We'll, put, we'll send out details this week about that. Okay, um, today we are wrapping up our series in the Gospel of Luke. And next week we're gonna start something new. We'll be starting the book of First Peter and I'm really looking forward to that. But as we're wrapping up the story in the Gospel of Luke today, we are going to be talking about the ascension of Christ. Interestingly, um, the ascension of Christ is a very important doctrine in Christian theology, but Luke is the only one that describes it. Um, there's other Gospel writers reference it. Jesus himself uh, predicts it and you know, says he's going to, it's going to happen. Luke is the only Gospel writer that gives us an account of what happened. Um, there is a one account in the Gospel of Luke, and then he gives another account in the, in the book of Acts. So Jesus did teach this, though, um, that this, is, this was a, an, an important part of his ministry, that he would be taken up, and in doing so, he will send his Holy Spirit into the hearts of his people as, after he is physically taken up. So that's what we're going to look at today. We're in Luke chapter 24. So if you want to grab your Bible, um, turn to Luke 24, and we will dig in together. And I'm going to read, we have four verses, four verses. And he led them out as far as Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him 
and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. This is the, this is the word of the Lord. I've really enjoyed studying this text um, because there's some things that the more I looked at it, the more things just sort of started to connect in my mind and I started to see themes and connections that were, that were just really delightful. Um, so let me just point out a few details in the text here and then I want to make some connections with these details and other parts of the Bible. Verse 51, um, or excuse me, verse 50, it says Jesus was lifting up his hands. That's one. And he blessed them. So that's lifting up his hands, he blessed them. So it's an action with a, a description of the action. That's one action. Lifting up his hands, he blessed them. So there's a, a physical posture and a spoken word. Um, and it also says here that um, his departure, so he parted from them. That is, that, that is the ascension. It's like he, he, he left them. It was a, he's physically taken up and carried up into heaven. So literally, he, they, the disciples saw him ascending into the sky. Um, the next one is they worshiped him. That is a, I mean, if you think about what that means, that's a, that's a pretty significant thing to just casually include. Oh, you know, they took a minute there and they worshiped Jesus, you know, uh, while these things were happening. I mean, that's a, that's a very significant detail that Luke uh, includes here. And then they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. So even though Jesus was no longer physically present with them, it did not diminish the joy that they experienced. Like, in fact, they, they returned to Jerusalem and they were filled with great joy. So there was a, even though Christ was no longer present, they were very happy. They, something about this was, made them happy. And then finally, they were continually in the temple, in the temple, blessing God. So their attitude of worship continued as they arrived in Jerusalem and entered into the temple. Now, I'll tell you what I'm seeing here. What I'm seeing here at least is an echo of a text in the Old Testament in Leviticus chapter 9. And I want to go through this text in Leviticus 9. Leviticus chapter 9 describes the first institution of worship in the Old Testament, uh, Old Testament community of Israel. And that worship is now fulfilled in Christ, but it was instituted during um, the time after the Exodus when you have all of God's people and there was the priesthood that was established and there was a sacrificial system and God made a covenant with Moses. All of these things happened and we have an account of this in, in Leviticus chapter 9. So the book of Leviticus, it's uh, probably in that, if you have a paper Bible, it's the part of the Bible that a lot of people's pages stick together because they've not read it. Um, it's, it's kind of, it, it can be a bit obscure. It can seem like, man, like, I don't see what this relates to at all. Um, but it actually, it's a, it's a very relevant book, and we're, we won't get into detail of it, of it today, but it's a, it's a fantastic book. It's very relevant. But the book of Leviticus, it gives laws that help administer the Old Testament sacrificial system. And so there were various sacrifices and offerings that were required. And the first eight chapters of Leviticus describe all of these things and gives laws of how this was to be done. So the laws about sacrifices that Israel, the people of God, were supposed to perform. There were laws of instituting a priesthood and the priests acted as mediators. So the, the mediators, the priests, would, would perform 
these rituals, these sacrifices on behalf of the people. And so the priests had additional responsibilities that would purify them as the ones who are the mediators between God and the people. There were, um, the first priest was uh, Aaron, and he's, that's Moses' brother. And they were from the tribe of Levi, and so the Levites, they were the priests of Israel. And the book is called Leviticus, which is a you know, it's, a, it's an allusion to the fact that it's all about the Levitical priesthood. So Leviticus is about these, these things. So these practices that they would do, the sacrifices, were meant to atone for sin. So it was, it was a means of, of uh, providing a way of forgiveness, a means of atonement for the sin of God's people. And that by doing so, it made a way for God's presence to dwell in the midst of the people. So you have this this nation of Israel. That's the way it was in the Old Testament. There was a nation, a, a plot of land that, that God had given to his people, and his people were to dwell in this land. And for it to be a covenant land with a covenant people, God would dwell in this land in a unique way with his people. But to dwell with his people uniquely, a holy God would not co, uh, co-inhabit with a sinful people. So there had to be means, some means of atoning for their sin to purify the people so that they could dwell in the presence and in the midst of a holy God and for a holy God to dwell in their midst. And that's what the priesthood did. That's what the Levitical, the the sacrifices did. It's like these, these animal sacrifices and these rituals was a means of atonement so a holy God could dwell in the land in the midst of a sinful people. And these sacrifices took place in a tent of meeting uh, or in a temple. Uh, so the tent of meeting was this, it was like a, literally a tent. And so they would um, pull up stakes as they wandered around, but they would put the stakes back down and then they would perform sacrifices within this tent of meeting. Eventually, they became a permanent structure that we know as the temple. But it's the same thing, but it was just made into a permanent structure. And so whenever these things took place, it was like God's presence was made known by his glory, filling the temple, filling the tabernacle. His glory was manifest in some way, which was, it's kind of like, you got it right. It was kind of like a ning, 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 you, get it, you did it right, and God's, God's glory is here. And because you, you're able to behold the glory of God, that means God's presence is truly here in a way that the people could see. And so all of this ceremonially marked out as holy to God through these rituals, this, this tent, this tabernacle, and this land, and this people, and then God, being holy and perfect and righteous, would dwell in the midst of a profane people because they're sinful. And that made the way for God's people to come and gather around this tabernacle, around this tent of meeting for worship. It made the way for God's people to worship God. Leviticus 1 through 8 describes the various rituals and practices. What I'm giving you now is like a theology piecing it all together. It doesn't explain all that in Leviticus 1 to 8. But Leviticus 1 to 8 does describe the particular things that needed to be done. And then Leviticus 9 is where it all is put into effect, where it all comes together and God's people are formally gathered for worship for the first time. I want to read you this. This is Leviticus chapter 9. Then Aaron, so he's the first priest, it's Moses' brother, Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. 
And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. So there were offerings that had been offered. Aaron came down after offering these things. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out. Fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. It's a pretty powerful worship service that just took place there. All of these things instituted by God in Moses' day were fulfilled by Christ. That's where, that's where we're driving this. They were fulfilled by Christ, and they were fulfilled in his life and in his death and in his resurrection. And I have one, two, three, four, five ways. Six ways. I have six ways. You get a bonus today. I have six ways that this was fulfilled in Christ. So I just want to go through these. Um, the, here's the first one. Jesus is the true and perfect sacrifice for sin. Jesus is the true and perfect sacrifice for sin. In the Old Testament, they had animals. They had grain offerings. They had peace offerings. They had guilt offerings. Um, but Jesus came and he fulfilled this sacrificial system. So the Old Testament worship system, it powerfully communicated the message that God is holy. I am a holy God. That's, that, that is a refrain that we hear throughout the Old Testament. I am a holy God. That means God is righteous. God is perfect. God is the bright, blinding light of perfection, righteousness. That's who he is. And yet God has set his love and affection on a sinful Wicked, rebellious people, and they are profane. And so, God, to be in the presence of this people, like there's, if if there were no atonement for sin, it would they would die. They would not be able to 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 be in the presence of such such perfect holiness and righteousness in any in any way. So there had to be a means of accounting for their sin, so God, who set His affection on them, could dwell in their midst, and they could have fellowship together. And so. This message was communicated through the sacrificial system. But the holiness of God, we see this throughout. So whenever Moses first encountered God, do you remember what God said to him? Anybody remember? At the burning bush, and God said something before anything else happened. Take your shoes off. Why? Because you're standing on holy ground. This, the, the, the burning bush, it was like the temple. It was like the presence of God is here in some powerful way. And Moses, you just waltz in here like wearing your, you know, wearing your dirty, grubby sandals like it's no big thing. And you're stepping into the presence of a holy God. You better take your shoes off to show reverence because you are about to experience righteousness and its perfection. So take off your shoes. It's holy ground. So even though God loved people, he loved them. He set his affection on them. He wanted to draw near to them. He wanted to have a relationship with them. But their sin prevented this from taking place. He would not dwell in the midst of a profane people. So he, this sacrificial system made the way. It gave them access. But in Christ, that sin has been atoned for in ways that far surpass the Old Testament system. The Old Testament system was there was always bulls and goats and, 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 and lambs and this sort of thing that would be an, an ever-present reminder that your sin is not actually atoned for in any lasting way. But whenever Jesus came, he fulfilled that system. So let me read to you. This is Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. 
And by that, we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Once for all. That means it's forever. It's done. It's over. There's no need for any more sacrifices. Jesus fulfilled. He is the perfect sacrifice that fulfilled all of what the Old Testament system anticipated. And every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. That's the Old Testament system. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, Christians in this room, that's you. That's you. As far as God is concerned, he looks at you through the lens of the atoning work of Jesus Christ and he sees perfect. Doesn't mean you are perfect. Doesn't mean you don't have sin to deal with and repent of and work on and grow and be sanctified. Doesn't mean that, that doesn't happen. But positionally, when God sees you, God sees the perfection of his son when he looks at you. And that's, that's glorious, that's wonderful. He does not see profane as he did in the Old Testament where there's always a need for more and more sacrifices. Jesus fulfilled that by offering himself once for all, and he is the true and perfect sacrifice for sin. That's number one. Number two, Jesus is the eternal mediator between God and man. So the Old Testament priests, we're talking about the people that administered these rituals, the priests of Aaron, Levitical tribe, Moses and Aaron, they were the mediators, so they offered these sacrifices, they performed the rituals on behalf of the people and they represented all the people to God. So they were kind of like the spiritual attorneys who are representatives. Like I'm here on behalf of the people, Lord, and I'm offering sacrifices on behalf of the people. And then God uh, communicates in some way or there are rituals that are done to the priests by which God declares the priests righteous and by extension the people righteous. But the priesthood was, was mediated and they had to go through all kinds of particular things to be consecrated to enable them to serve in the, uh, the priesthood. And that helped them to maintain a relationship with God. One of the liturgical functions of priests was to lift their hands and offer blessing. So to lift your hand and offer blessing, that's, that means more than just saying like a, a well-wishing. And that's fine. You know, whenever we give a blessing, you know, we will we'll say, you know, God bless you. Uh, somebody sneezes. We say, God bless you. Uh, something like that. You know, it's, it's, it's a, it, it can be, you know, just a friendly thing that we say. But in the worship of Old Testament Israel, it was a liturgical function. And it served the purpose of pronouncing by an official of God's uh, rulers, somebody operating in an official capacity, representing God, declaring and announcing to the people, God's favor is upon you. You are blessed. You are a blessed people because of God's initiative towards you to atone for your sin through this system. So in Leviticus 9, Aaron offers... Uh, does this priestly duty where he lifts up his hands and he blesses them. And he does it as a priestly duty, an official part of worship as their liturgy. And he pronounced God's favor. Now we see Jesus did the same thing in Luke 24. So Jesus 
he, he, he's, it seems as though he's presiding over a worship service. There's a, there's a liturgical flavor here when it says he lifted up his hands and blessed them. That's not merely saying, I want to bless you, but I want to show you I really mean it by putting my hand up. It's like, no, there's, a, there's an official liturgical function being performed. I'm lifting up my hands and blessing you. And the Son of God is declaring to the disciples, God's favor is upon you. It's a powerful thing. And Jesus is doing so not as a mere human mediator like the priests that had their own sins to deal with, that were, were performing a function and themselves, were, they were flawed, but Jesus was doing so as an eternal mediator between God and man because all the Levitical priests, they were always humans and humans only. But Jesus is fully God and fully human, which qualifies him uniquely as the one who could be an eternal mediator because he represents man to God because he is God and he represents God to man because he is man. Fully human, fully divine. And that renders the Old Testament priesthood obsolete. So 1 Timothy 2, verses 5 and 6 says, there is one God and there's one mediator between God and men the man Christ Jesus. Why? How? Well, he gave himself as a ransom. That's like an atoning sacrifice. As, an, a, as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. He is the true mediator, an eternal mediator between God and man. Here's a third point. Jesus is the true high priest who gives us access to the Father. So in Christ, we have access to God. We can have a real relationship with God. I mean, just think about what, what that means. Better, better yet, think of people who don't know the Lord. And so if you're an atheist or if you're, you know, just some pagan um, agnostic, I don't know, there might be a God out there somewhere, but you don't know. And they don't know if there's a God that created them. They don't know if there's a God that loves them. They don't know if there is any meaning or any purpose at all in life. It is a desperate, hopeless worldview. Now, you, Christian, think about what that means. You have access to the Father, meaning you have a relationship with the Father, meaning that you know that there is a God who created you, who loves you, who's aware of your every action, every, every movement. He cares for you. He's looking out for you. You have access to him. You know God. God knows you. God knows your name. Your name is written in his book. What a, what a privilege that is, that you have that, that we all have that. So through Jesus Christ, we have access because Jesus is our perfect high priest. He became one of us. He took on human weakness. And through his death and his resurrection, we're cleansed of our sin. We're not profane. We are purified. And because of that, we have full access to God. There isn't barriers between us and the Lord. We have, we have full access as a child to a father. Let me read you a text that says this. This is Hebrews 4, verse 14 to 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. So he has ascended. Our great high priest has passed through the heavens. I'll just write that. That's... He ascended. 
Jesus, the Son of God, in case you didn't know, is, we're talking about Jesus here. He's the one that ascended. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We don't have like the Old Testament priests. We go to the temple and the man who's offering a sacrifice on your behalf, mediating God to you and you to God, who is a horrible guy. You know him, he's your neighbor. Or you, 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 know, you live down the street from him. Like, he, I can't stand that guy. He, he's ridiculous. He's a horrible man. And he's representing me to God. It's like, what, who, what is this? That's weird. That's how you might feel. But here it's like we know that the one who's representing us to God is perfect. He is a great high priest without any sin, without any flaws. And yet he can still sympathize with human frailty because he became one of us, truly became a human being. And one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near we don't have to keep our distance. You ever feel like you've done something bad? And it's like you kind of do like Adam did in the garden and Eve did in the garden. You want to hide. You want to cover yourself. You're like, I don't want to deal with God right now because you're ashamed. Author of Hebrews says, let us then with confidence draw near. You don't have to run away. You can run too because you know what you're going to get when you run to. When you, when you run to the throne, are you going to get a scolding? Are you going to get yelled at? There you are again, Frank. I knew it. I knew it. What have you been up to, moron? What did you do this time, stupid? No, that's not how he treats us. Whenever we draw near, we draw near to the throne of grace because we need to receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. So whenever you screw up, you go to God, and my God, I know I've done this a hundred times, and I've repented a hundred times, and I meant it, but I still, I'm weak. And Jesus can affirm, I've, I've, I've experienced human weakness. I've experienced human temptation. And we go to him and we find exactly this. We find mercy. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. And we find grace. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. And we find help. Help me, God. Help me get better. And he does. He helps you get better because he's a great high priest. Your sin no longer alienates you from God. Now, you might be... You might have a broken fellowship with God if you have unconfessed, unrepentant sin that you're harboring. That can diminish your experience of, of, of God's closeness. So there can, be a, a, there can be fracturing and tension in the relationship because you're, you're, you're clinging to the thing that is a wall between you and God. But positionally, your relationship with God is secure. He is your father. You are his son or daughter by faith. Next one. What is this, number three? Jesus is the true tent of meeting, the true temple where God's presence dwells. Jesus is the true tent of meeting or the true temple where God's presence dwells. So Jesus' physical body was the place where God dwelt as a human being. So he is God. No other human being is God. 
Only Jesus Christ is a human being who also happens to be God himself in human body. And as such, the body is like a tent. It is a dwelling place. And God's presence dwelt with with, uh, Christ in his body. And he's described this way in the Bible. So I'll give you a couple of examples. John chapter 1, verse 14. And this capital W word, that just means he's talking about Jesus. And the word, that's Jesus, the word became flesh. So word is the eternal God, the, the spirit, God who is spirit. But the word became flesh. So he became a human being and dwelt among us. Now, you don't, we don't see this in English, but the word for dwelt is the same word for tent, to pitch a tent. Um, and that's, that, that, is, that, that is not an accident because it means like whenever Jesus walked around from town to town, it's like God moving around in the tabernacle in the Old Testament times as, as people wandered around. Wherever the tabernacle went, that's where God's presence went. Same thing with Jesus. Wherever Jesus went, Jesus went to uh, Galilee. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Jesus went to Jerusalem. Jesus went up to Caesarea Philippi. It's like, that's like the presence of God everywhere because Jesus Christ is God. He's the tent. So the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. So just like in the Old Testament, whenever God's glory appeared in the, the tabernacle, in Jesus Christ, they have seen his glory. Now I think they're referencing the transfiguration, which... That's a sermon for a different day. But John himself witnessed the transfiguring of Christ and he saw the glory of Jesus in his human body. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Luke 23, 45, at the crucifixion, whenever Jesus, uh, whenever Jesus died, we have the temple now, so now we're in New Testament times in the life of Christ. Jesus is being crucified, and the tent is now a permanent fixture, a structure of the temple. And within the middle of the temple is the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies is surrounded by a thick curtain. And when I say thick curtain, I mean you would, it would take a team of horses on either side to rip it. A very, very thick curtain because this represented the, the separation, the wall, the barrier between profane humans and a holy God. And there's, there's different layers of separation built within the temple itself. And whenever the curtain is torn, that means that the presence of God is now being unleashed, being kind of set free, being, being kind of being free to, to move about. Not that God was ever restricted, but God's own holiness by, by, his, by his choice, he, he, he can find himself in his unique presence there because there's the, the land is profane, the people are profane. But through the blood of Jesus, the temple curtain is ripped open, meaning that the sacrifice is, has accomplished the purpose for which uh, Jesus did it. And now the presence of God is now, now broadened. Jesus, uh, the, the, the presence of God is now can be anywhere. Hebrews 8, verses 1 and 2, here's another text. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So he said, he's saying that all of these things, like this 
all, all of the sacrificial system, the things that God instituted in Leviticus, all resided in the man Jesus Christ in that tent. So Jesus' own body is God's dwelling place. Now, as Christians, what's a common way that we refer to all Christians? We are the body of Christ, right? So in the new, we're talking about the physical body of Jesus as we've been talking so far is, you know, his flesh and blood. But now his physical body has ascended. It is no longer present on earth. So does Jesus still have a body on earth? Yes, he does. He has a body on earth because he has us. And we are indwelt by the Spirit. So every Christian, you have the Holy Spirit living within you because you are now sacred space. Your, your human body is now sacred. It is set apart for God. Because you have faith in Jesus, your old man died. The new man has been raised to life. And because of your faith, now you are sacred. You are set apart. You are purified. You're consecrated. You're holy. And together, we constitute the priesthood of believers. Corporately, we are a priesthood. Corporately, we are a temple. We are corporately a body. Do you see how what God is doing, God is... God is taking over the world. And that what used to be limited to a tabernacle, a temple, a human body in Jesus Christ is now growing and expanding to where God, the body of Jesus, is now in Afghanistan, and it's here in Cincinnati, and it's in Alaska, and it's in Canada, and it's everywhere else you can imagine. The, everywhere there's Christians, the body of Christ is there. Jesus has a physical presence on earth there. Jesus' spirit, the Holy Spirit, is present in that individual because we are now a priesthood. Jesus has priests, a priesthood, everywhere there are Christians. I'll read you this from 1 Peter 2. As you come to him, he's talking about you Christians, you Christians, as you come to God, a living stone rejected by men but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Do you see that? I look out here and I see all kinds of Christians, which means what I see are stones. I see bricks. <laughs> but they're living stones. And they're living stones that are like part of a, of a house, a spiritual house. I look out here and I see a, a priesthood. I see Levites who are consecrated for God's service to represent God to a profane world. I see people who can offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God. What are our spiritual sacrifices? It's, it's our prayers. It's our good works. It's telling others about Jesus. It's participating in the Who's Your One campaign. It's like, I've got somebody I want to share Jesus with them. You are like a priest mediating, appealing to somebody else on behalf of God. And you're indwelt by the Spirit and empowered by the Spirit. Jesus, here's the, here's the next point. Jesus is the true object of worship. The true object of worship. In Leviticus 9, it said that a fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. 
Do you all know the first commandment of the ten? You shall have no other gods before me. The first commandment is the prohibition against idolatry, which means you may not worship anything or anyone other than the one true God. To do so is idolatry, and to do so would merit execution in the Old Testament law. It was that serious of a crime. And it was a big deal. Uh, whenever God judged Israel in the Old Testament, their chief sin was that they participated in idolatry and they worshiped false gods. Whenever Satan tempted Jesus in the desert, they offered Jesus all the kingdoms of the world if Jesus would only worship him. And then what did Jesus say? It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. You're wrong, Satan, get out of here. And yet, Jesus received worship. He received it. Was Jesus a hypocrite? No. Of course not. Because he is worthy of worship because he is the one true God. Trinity, three in one, Jesus is God, fully God. Jesus was worthy of worship, and so he was a proper object of worship. Matthew chapter 2, verse 11, the, the wise men came to visit Jesus, baby Jesus, hanging out with his mama. And they fell down and they worshipped him. Imagine how Mary would have felt <laughs> seeing these dudes walk in and they're falling down before your baby and they're worshipping your baby. Uh, but that was true. Uh, Matthew 14, 33. Jesus calmed the sea, the miracle where he calmed the sea. And after this happened, those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly you are the son of God. Jesus did not correct them. He didn't say, hey, fellas, knock that off. I'm not, I'm not worthy of this. No, he received worship because he is God. He's worthy of it. The Greek word for worship means to bow down or to kneel. So it is a prostrate. It is a, it is a posture of total contrition and surrender. So whenever in Luke 24 it said the disciples worshiped Jesus, it doesn't mean they had a feeling of reverence in their hearts. It means they were like Leviticus 9 when they fell down on their faces before Jesus as he was taken up. So Jesus is worthy of worship and Jesus, the disciples, did something good and right. And their worship is an open acknowledgement that Christ is divine. And it says right after that that they were, that they were filled with great joy. The disciples were filled with great joy. Because they were made to worship, and that is evident in the fact that worship itself is a joyful experience. They were joyful because now, after all of these things, after Jesus has opened their minds and they understand the truth of the gospel and the Old Testament connections, their doubts, their questions, their fears have been answered. And so it's clear now that the days of humiliation is done and that his physical presence on earth is over, and it's time for him to be ascended to the Father. Here's the last, uh, well, last two, the last, or last one. Jesus provides the true benediction, the true eternal blessing of God towards his people. So I mentioned this before, lifting up your hands and blessing, that is a, that is a liturgical way of pronouncing from an official, in an official capacity God's favor is toward you. Your sin is atoned for, and God is, God's blessing is toward you. And we see this uh, enacted in Numbers chapter 6 in the 
this is known as the Aaronic, as in A-A-R-O-N, Aaron, Aaronic blessing. Very famous, very famous blessing. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons saying, thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, I get this, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name, this is God speaking, so that shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. The ultimate blessing you could receive is not a Lamborghini or a mansion in the Hamptons as the prosperity preachers will tell you. The ultimate blessing is peace with God, fellowship with God, being adopted into his family. And that is secured through faith in Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. In liturgical practice, this is called the benediction. And it happens at the end of a service. We do it every week. We'll do one today. And a benediction, the word is like it's a Latin word, which has been a good diction word or speech. It's speaking something good, speaking a blessing. I looked this up in a Bible dictionary because I'm like, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a bit of a nebulous concept. Like, what does it mean to really bless somebody? And I'll, here's what it said. It's a lot richer than I realized. This Bible dictionary said, blessing is a pronouncement of the favor of God upon an assembled congregation the practice of benediction or blessing is often regarded as merely a ritual of dismissal, but it is actually a pronouncement of God's gracious favor to be given by his ministers on the authority of Holy Scripture to faithful believers. And in this action, Christians are assured that the grace of the Father, the love of the Son, and the communion of the Holy Spirit are with them. So whenever we do the, the benediction at the end, I receive that with the, the full weight that God intends for you to receive. God, the benediction is a word from God, a pronouncement that God wants you to be strengthened and encouraged by. And it's, it's no coincidence that this benediction was offered by Jesus as he said goodbye. So Jesus' ascension was a bit of a benediction of a blessing that was pronounced as he was leaving them and the worship service that they were having here on the Mount of Olives is over. But on the authority of scripture and our benediction, God assures us that his indwelling presence goes with us because he favors us. And then Jesus is gone. He's taken up into heaven just like Enoch, the book of Genesis, just like Elijah, the book of 2 Kings. And in the Apostles' Creed, this has been affirmed for centuries, that Jesus ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. So Jesus resurrected from the dead, and then, after a few weeks, he ascended in a glorified body, which is likewise promised to each of us, we will receive a glorified body in our, whenever we are resurrected at the last day. And this is the end of Luke's gospel. But it's not the end of the story. It's just the end of this particular part of it because Luke wrote a sequel. 
And the sequel is the book of Acts. Luke wrote both of them. And so now the disciples, right as this new day is dawned by physical, Jesus' physical departure, they have entered into a new era that is enabled by the arrival of the Spirit. So physical departure makes way for a spiritual arrival of the Holy Spirit. And a few weeks after this here, the Holy Spirit will arrive on Pentecost. And the Holy Spirit will come, and if you know the story, they speak in tongues, and they, they're speaking in different languages, and it was a powerful moment that happened at Pentecost. And that kicked off in earnest the mission of the church, the church age, where the living temple, the living stones, the priesthood of believers, the blood-bought, spirit-filled people of God, the body of Christ now scatters and blankets the globe because every tribe, every nation, every people will be brought into the body of Christ because that is who Jesus came to save. So we declare the gospel to all nations because that's who's on God's heart. And this story begins in the book of Acts and it tells the story of Jesus continuing to build his church through, um, through the witness of the apostles in the, in the New Testament. And then someday, at God's appointed time, Jesus will return. The same way he left, he'll come back, and then he'll usher in an eternal state, and we will all be with him forever, and we will reign with him forever in a new heavens and a new earth. But until then, between that day to come and where we are now, Jesus' promise was given to us in Matthew 28, which is, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He's with us now. He's present. And so he's commissioned us as the church to make disciples of all nations, which means we reach them with the gospel. We, we proclaim the, the, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ and the meaning and apply it to people, and we teach them to obey. And so now, as God's purified people, forgiven and purified, enjoying his favor, filled with the Spirit, there's work to do. And that's what we do. Well, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for sending your Son. Thank you, Father, for communicating to us thousands of years ago, and you have it written down in your word, all of these clues as to the atonement and the, the temple and what you would do through Christ, and that we're all able to, to look at it this morning and see and behold and be joyful and worship you and glorify your name because of the finished work of Christ. And so we thank you, Jesus, that as you were taken up, that shortly thereafter you sent your spirit so that we, through faith, are indwelt by your spirit and then we can be transformed from one degree of glory to another. And now fill us, empower us for faithful service until you return. Thank you, Jesus. We worship you now. We pray all these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We are Christ the King Church. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctkcincy.com.